The Danvers Statement on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood says, We have been moved in our purpose by the following contemporary developments which we observe with deep concern. The widespread uncertainty and confusion in our culture regarding the complementary differences between masculinity and femininity, the tragic effects of this confusion in unraveling the fabric of marriage, the increasing promotion given to feminist egalitarianism, the widespread ambivalence regarding the values of motherhood, the growing claims of legitimacy for sexual relationships which have biblically and historically been considered illicit or perverse, the increase of pornographic portrayal of human sexuality, the upsurge of physical and emotional abuse in the family, the emergence of roles for men and women in church leadership that do not conform to biblical teaching, the increasing prevalence and acceptance of hermeneutical oddities, the consequent threat to biblical authority, and the apparent accommodation of some within the church to the spirit of the age. That's all from the opening part of the statements that they label the rationale. This is the Faith Debate on News Radio 930 WFMD on the FM at 99.9 HD2 on the Internet, of course, at WFMD.com. And if you'd like a track along with us offline, the easiest way to connect is to go to householdoffaithinchrist.com. Uh, that's my church's website. I'm Troy Skinner, the pastor of that church. It's householdoffaithinchrist.com. If you go there, you can connect to the faith debate through that. You can connect to all the social media through that. You can connect to everything that we do with the church, the, the sermons and those sorts of things. Uh, and we've also vetted a bunch of resources. Uh, in fact, if you go to householdoffaithinchrist.com, you can find a link to the Danvers statement that I just read a portion of. Um, not that everything that we link to on the website is perfect, um, but it's certainly better than most of what you'll find out there. And so if you want to get a, a, a fighting shot at finding something decent at the beginning, that's a good place to start. On the panel this week to talk about the things that are in the Danvers Statement are David Forsey, pastor of a uh, multi-location house church. Um, I like to joke that it's like the whack-a-mole church in town. You never quite know where he's going to uh, meet. And um, so if you're interested in checking his church out, you definitely want to maybe get in touch with me. I'll get you in touch with David and he can tell you where he's going to be. But generally, for the most part, it, I think more often than not, it's in the uh, like the th southern sections of like Washington and Frederick County area or yeah. pretty close to that part. Uh, but on rare occasion, it's 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 not down that in them there parts. So you never can be sure. And uh, and also on the panel this week is Steven Yerger. He is one of the leaders of the Shabbat gathering that meets um, Gettysburg area, uh, Adams County, north of, uh, of Frederick. Uh, I'm not sure exactly. What, Gettysburg has like a sprawling sort of uh, zip code area. So I'm not sure how close to Frederick you are. But if you're in northern Frederick County or southern, you know, Pennsylvania in the Adams County area, maybe uh, maybe that's something you'd be want to check into. And if you want to get in touch with Steven Yerger, uh, again, reach out to me and I'll, I'll, I'll hook you up. All right, so I opened up with the, the you know, the, the set the stage of what the Danvers Statement is all about. This statement's pretty short. It... it uh, I think it was written in 1987 and uh, released in 1988, if my, uh, uh, if my understanding of the history of that is correct. 
We have recently been spending some time on the show going through the Chicago statements. We did the Chicago statement on inerrancy, on hermeneutics, and began to look at application. We're taking a small break from the application. We have a few articles left to do. We didn't quite finish that up in our uh, last recording session with uh, uh, Imran and Daniel Razvi. And uh, I think it would make sense maybe to uh, pull them back into the discussion to finish that up so that they can finish what they started. So we're taking a break from that for now to do this. But it's all kind of related. The last of the Chicago statements that was written uh, came out in the 1980s. And here we are still in the 1980s, just a little bit later into the Reagan years uh, for this Danvers statement. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to read the, uh, the affirmations and we're going to discuss and I think I might do a couple at a time. I'll read a couple because they're pretty short. So I'll read a couple at a time and, and we'll go from there. So these are the affirmations. Based on our understanding of biblical teachings, we affirm the following. Both Adam and Eve were created in God's image, equal before God as persons and distinct in their manhood and womanhood. Distinctions in masculine and feminine roles are ordained by God as part of the created order and should find an echo in every human Heart. Now, this sounds like pretty boilerplate, basic, standard, historic, Christian kind of stuff. So why did they have to put this in a, in a statement in the 1980s, do you think? I think probably they started seeing things on the horizon that they needed to saw the storm clouds coming. Maybe it was a way off, but they said, hey, we got to make some definition here and we've got to put it out there so there's no confusion. Yeah. yeah. By the way, that was the voice of Stephen Yerger. The next voice you're going to hear is that of David Forsey, okay. just so you can keep the voices clear. Uh, uh, yep. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think, I, I think they were actually maybe a little bit... Uh, a little bit late to the game uh, in getting something like this out, and and I say, I say they. I mean, um, maybe maybe be helpful. I'm I'm not exactly sure, uh, but Troy, maybe this would be helpful. You you know, sort of who was a part of the the, the panel or whatever in putting the Danvers statement together? Um, yeah, it's a it's uh, a, a, some pretty big names were involved, and it's the same group. Uh, basically the same group that came together uh, about three decades later to do the Nashville Statement. Okay. Uh, and the people that were involved in the Nashville Statement, uh, again, some of the names would be the, would be the same, mm. I'm, I'm pretty sure. And some of them are big names. Let me see if I can find my, my list real quick. I have... Uh, where's the list that I was looking for? The, the Just sort of uh, across-the-board evangelical... Uh, leaders. Yeah, like if you're familiar with Lingonier Ministries, a lot okay. of Lingonier guys like Burke Parsons would have been involved. R.C. Sproul would have been yeah. involved. But but also some surprising names uh, are, are in this group. Like on the Nashville Statement, David French. <laughs> oh, yeah. Su surprising, right? Russell Moore, I think, well, was involved. Maybe. But, uh, it depends on what's in there. Yeah, you know what I mean? So there, uh, <laughs> there's some people that, they could, oh, yeah, they, they're solidly biblical. And the others like, Holy schmoly, how they... So my, my thinking is that the heat wasn't real hot back then, and I think a lot of guys in, in a postmodern world where it's about reader response theory, we've talked about this before, uh -huh. 
where you can kind of make the words mean what you want them to mean, right? Sure. Everything's a sure. living, breathing document. And I, as the reader, get to determine what the intention of the words are. It's not about authorial intent. What the author thought doesn't matter. It's what I, as the reader, right. think. Well, in that kind of a world, I could sign off on any statement. I can make the words mean whatever I want. Define them however I please. <laughs> and I think that's a big part of how some of these guys were able to sign this. So it, mm. it was it was supposed to be a conservative group, but we know better now that not all the guys who signed off on this were conservative. Yeah. Well, time plays things out. Yeah. So and there's a name of the organization, darn it, and I'm I'm I, I'm, I'm it, it'll come up at some point. I'll find it. So um, I, I, I was saying I think they're 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 a little bit late to the game in, in some respects because I think uh, um, I mean I think a lot of this a lot of the issues that we have today as far as um, you know as far as this this topic goes uh, you know are rooted well well back into the the feminist movements you know from a hundred to a hundred fifty years ago uh, and yeah, I think they're yeah. mostly, this is probably more than anything, a response against third wave feminism. Right. Third third wave. Right. Not first wave. Third, third, third wave. wave. Yes. That's pretty far along. Yeah. And we're, <laughs> and we're in fourth wave now. So, right. But th so I think they were dealing with third wave feminism, which, to be honest, first wave feminism, not all bad. Might have been an important contextual, con uh, you know, that's... Uh, was was something of a, of a saying, hey... You know, men men do abuse. You know their right their strength and position sometimes. Right, and, which and, is true. And women are people too. You know, I think that right, there was right. some aspect of <laughs> of that with the first wave. And I, I've, I so I, I, everything's a mixed, mixed bag historically. Mm -hmm. Second wave, it's like okay, maybe we're pushing the envelope here. What's going on? Third wave, you know. Women are men too, almost. Like you know, it was this. Think about this: seventies and eighties. The Equal rights amendment is is big in the seventies. They're trying to get get it ratified, and so now here we are, a decade later, after that big push, and all the women are career minded. And you know, I can have one of the great lies the enemy has perpetrated on women, families in general, but particularly on women. We can have it all. We can, we can have the career. We can have the house. We can have the kids. We can have the perfect family. We, we can have the church involvement. We, we, can have the, we can have everything. No, you can't. There's only 168 hours in the week. You can't have everything. So you got to make choices. You have to have discernment to decide where your priorities are going to lie. And so people bought into this lie, and we're paying the price of that as a culture. We're getting probably ahead of ourselves on some of these things in the state well, and, but <laughs> and and also you know in the very basic sense like we have here right like you uh god has created us man and woman and you know men can't have everything that women have and vice versa oh right yeah yeah Ma yeah man men can't have everything either right right the other big lie by the way that, that we've all heard growing up particularly in the American, you know, positive affirmation kind of context is you can be anything you want to be. Mm -hmm. No, you can't. I'm sorry. If, if I'm the first person, if you're hearing my voice right now, I'm the first person to ever told you, you can't be anything you want to be. You know what? You're going to be precisely what God says you're going to be. And if he says you're not going to be the president of the United States, you can't be president of the United States. 
So, and if you're, you know, five foot three, weigh a buck 25, you are not going to be a nose tackle for the, you know, what's a popular team? The, uh, what do they call them? The Commanders <laughs> or the, uh, the Ravens or what? You're just not. You can't, if you're five foot three and you weigh 125 pounds, you can't be anything you want to be. <laughs> so, anyway. Just to inject here, you know, vacuums are created and nature hates a vacuum. And when there mm -hmm. is proper, uh, there is not proper understanding and proper implementation of the role of the man or the husband or the father, mm -hmm. then you run into a real problem because then things are forced on the woman, the wife, the mother, that she might not be necessarily equipped and an overburden that will be placed that will create um, real issues and then you have the knee-jerk response. So all these movements, all these waves probably came into play because there was um, a vacuum of proper male leadership and by the way, in the context of talking about women's roles, I would just, for the record, I wasn't one was not the one that brought up the word vacuum. Just for the record. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's uh, let's look at the next two. Adam's headship in marriage was established by God before the fall, and was not a result of sin. The fall introduced distortions into the relationship between men and women. This is an important thing to clarify, which is why they put it in here. You guys are pastors. Why is this an important thing to clarify? That Adam is, 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 has a headship role and that this headship role is pre-fall. So the, the fall is when sin, sin enters the world and distorts everything. And so... Uh, yeah, some people do make the argument that that the uh, you know that the man being stronger, more dominant, whatever, is something that happened as a result of sin distorting the world, and so then they would make the argument: well, we need to then shoot for. Uh, you know, trying to make things in the image of what it was like before the fall when, you know, when there was perfect uh, equity, equality, sameness, whatever um, you want to put in there. So, so yeah, it's important to... I'd go with equality, by the way. <laughs> equity often brings a lot of baggage. I'm, uh, I, I'm just saying it's going to depend on who you talk to as to what word they're going to use. <laughs> so. Yeah, but it's not... It, the, the man is not the head in the family because the woman's being punished. The, 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 the man is being, is being 
placed into a head-shaped role because that's God's design and that's what's best for a well-oiled machine as the family. It's not a punishment. And the results of the fall of distortion is how many men do you know that are all too willing to abdicate that responsibility of leadership? And how many mm-hmm. women, uh, because of the distortion, and sometimes because their husbands refuse to step into leadership, uh, are all too quick to want to take on that responsibility and be the ones who, quote-unquote, wear the pants in the family. That's the context of the vacuum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, I don't know if we have, yep. have a whole lot more to say on that. And if we do, uh, it, there's some common themes throughout this. I'm going to read the next two. So this is... Uh, Five and six. In the home, the husband's loving, humble headship tends to be replaced by domination or passivity. The wife's intelligent, willing submission tends to be replaced by usurpation or servility. So we were just kind of talking about that a little bit. Uh, In the church, sin inclines men toward a worldly love of power or an abdication of spiritual responsibility and inclines women to resist limitations on their roles or to neglect the use of their gifts in appropriate ministries. I kind of already got ahead of us and talked a little bit about how the the fall, the sinful nature that we have messes things up in the home. But this starts to talk also about what this means inside the church. So you you want to comment on on that? I know that you're not each, I'm going to be a little more specific. David spoke the most the last time, so do you have anything you want to add first, Stephen? If not, I'm going to then go to uh, David. Anything you want to say about uh, men abdicating their leadership roles inside the church and women maybe um, not living the life the way that they should inside the church? Well, let's talk about some of the abdication of not testing and allowing the members within a congregation to be able to win a pastor or elder or a significant, the leader is maybe coming out with some progressive ideas. It's the role of the congregation to kind of check that. And so in ways as a leader of your home or your household, also the participation in God's household and maybe spiritually is in this nation and a lot of churches across the country, they've advocated that ability to test and in a loving, sharing, humble, mutual submission way, go and and say, you know, what you're talking about is not quite biblical. Can you help me to understand where you're coming from and why the pressures of the world is encroaching within the congregation? There's one abdication you might be able to see. And for ease of being understood, I know that um, Steve Yerger used the word progressive, but I, I know him well enough to know that what he meant by that was regressive, right? Regressive tendencies in the church. There's nothing progressive about it. We're not making progress. <laughs> it, it's a terminology that seems to be used a lot in yeah, no, order no. to have meaning. So exactly. thank you. I appreciate your definition. I'm just clarifying in, in case anybody ever would be confused what when you hear progressive in common parlance, what you should hear is regressive. <laughs> so, well, t- today that's what it is, right? Right. Yeah. The 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 conservative and progressives have right. swi- switched roles in in some ways. Yeah. Good this, point. This isn't new. 
And even in 1987, when these guys got together to write this, this was not a new problem. Mm. Think about in our yeah. ent- our entire lifetime, the three of us in the room, and if you're a little bit more well-seasoned than the three of us in this room, your lifetime too. When you were a little kid, it was very common to, to think in terms, to hear stories about how mom and grandma are really praying for you. They're really praying for your salvation. They're going to church and they're praying for you. It wasn't grandpa. It wasn't dad. It was, it, it was like a, mate, it was a spiritual matriarchy that has been pervasive in the church my entire life. And if you walk into most churches today, if you walk into most churches 10 years ago, if you walk into most churches 40 years ago, a majority of those in attendance are women. Women and children. The women bring their kids, and the dad is, feels like, well, I checked that box. My wife is taking care of that. I don't have to go. I can watch football. I can play golf. I can do whatever. I wonder when that, that shift, is a problem. I wonder when that shift happened. That'd be really interesting. I was know. just going to comment that some external pressures upon our society. Look at World War One. The demand of pulling the young men, uh, the draft. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying these things are bad. I'm not saying it's just a circumstance. And you get into World War II, and you have men pulled out of the out of the workforce. They're going overseas. They're doing what they have to do. You have women now that are being pulled from the family, and they're going to work because of the war effort. Because this was huge. This was you know we were mm-hmm. thinking at the time. You know, these people are going to take us over. We have to pull out all the stops. <clears throat> but it created an atmosphere where the home now is either watched by babysitters or grandparents or whatever, and there's an interruption in the family unit. And then after the war, they want to come back together and everything, but now you have all these things set in place, and now you have an independence that probably wasn't there before, because of the economic things, the financial things. And so there's things there that could ride on that, but it definitely had effect spiritually. Yeah, I definitely nation. think that's part of it. I think it you could go back even further. It's probably way more complex and complicated than what we're going to offer on the show today. Sure. But if we go back further, I would say that the shift, the economic, the, the macro shift from an agrarian society to more of an industrial society where dad wasn't home anymore, he left the home to go work in the factory. Well, you're talking right after Civil War. You know, yeah. So I think in the 1800s, first, first I think, wave, I think yeah, I think we yeah. began to see... Uh, at least then, maybe even before that, but certainly I think that was a shift. And so then the women are back on the homestead taking care of the kids, raising the kids in charge of the spiritual formation of their kids because dad wasn't home. I think that was part of it. Those are the grandmothers that were praying for the kids. Yeah, and then that gets exacerbated when you've got the... uh, you know, the war, World War One, World War Two, and all of that dynamic going on. And then on top of that, you've got um, theological liberalism, to be distinct from political liberalism, that really uh, was beginning to emerge in the late 1800s in the church in a big way and had basically won the fight for the church, meaning macro speaking, right. by the early 1900s. And so then it became more about uh, emotional exuberance, about the church experience 
and women are wired to really value and appreciate those kinds of experiences. Men are a little more binary, a little more uh, intellectually focused. Not that women are stupid, but I'm saying things that are interesting to men are what can I learn? What's good? What's bad? Tell me the truth. And I can make decisions with that truth. Like, you know, I have problems in my life. Give me some information. will help me solve those problems, generally speaking. And then women are more about the touchy-feely relationship, uh, the, the mental gymnastics micro, uh, multitasking that they do, that sort of thing. And so with that mindset taking root in the church, the church has started to feel more feminine. And so the men didn't feel like they belonged as much. And like, well, this is all sissy stuff that's going on in church. And the women felt really – so I think that that exacerbated it even more. So I think it's a whole combination of things. But at the root of it is men are all too willing to give up their headship role. <laughs> and women are all too willing to take it on. So I, I think it's – sin is at the, at the root as well. And we're going to make like no time on this at all if we don't pick up the pace. I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the next two, but we might not really have time to talk about them a whole lot in this episode. The Old Testament as well as the New Testament manifests the equality, um, the equally, sorry, the equally high value and dignity which God attached to the roles of both men and women. Both Old and New Testaments also affirm the principle of male headship in the family and in the covenant community. Redemption in Christ aims at removing the distortions introduced by the curse. Uh, we have like maybe a minute, minute and a half, so if you have a quick take on that. And if we, and if that's enough, we'll start with new ones next week. If not, we'll pick up this discussion in next week's episode. Any uh, quick re- comments on that one? No, nothing. You, you know I'm known for my quick comments. Quick there. comments, yes. Anyway. Pithy, pithy David. Nope, nope. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, well, I can be the pithy one, but then right, I end up dominating the show. And I, you know, I, I listen back to the show. And I'm like, man, I did like 80% of the talking in that episode. That's not good. We'll, so. we'll leave a cliffhanger. I'll give you a 15 second. Okay. <laughs> the role was advocated by Adam in the very beginning. If he was watching over things, would yeah. she have bit the, the, the forbidden fruit? I mean, it's speculation on our part at this point. What's done is done, but it makes you wonder if that was the first abdication in a sense it makes you wonder if that's kind of the first sin adam abdicates his leadership role he's standing by idly letting eve take charge make decisions for the both of them i wonder if there's i hadn't really thought about in these terms before but i wonder if like that's the kernel that from which all other sin kind of springs (laughs) because he's given leadership right he's supposed to uh, have dominion. He's supposed to, to to subdue the earth and to, to fill it, to multiply. He's supposed to take that leadership role, take the world by the horns kind of thing, and he lays back. And look at what the world that's left with us now all these thousands of years later. So that's that's interesting. Mm-hmm. All right, so we'll, we'll uh, continue. Uh, we'll... I, I'm guessing we're going to finish the Danvers statement next week. That's my guess. That's my prediction. We'll see if I'm a, if I'm a prophet or not, if, I, if my prediction comes true. <laughs> if not, stone me now. Uh, anyway, this is the, <laughs> this is the uh, Faith of Eight. I'm Troy Skinner. Please don't stone me now. Uh, I'm the pastor of Household of Faith in Christ. You can find us online at householdoffaithinchrist.com. I want to uh, thank the two gentlemen who participated in this week's panel, Stephen Yerger with uh, the Shabbat Gathering in Adams County, just north of Frederick County, and um, 
uh, David Forsey. I, I got to come up with a f- better name than the multi-location church, but for now that's what I got. <laughs> Pastor of the multi-location house church uh, in the area, the Frederick area. Uh, we'll be back next week to finish up the Danvers statement. Uh, we're going to be getting into the Nashville statement shortly after that, and we will eventually swing back and finish up our talk on the Chicago statement on biblical application, but that'll be off in the distance a few weeks at least. Anyway, thanks so much for sending part of your Sunday morning with us uh, today, or if you're listening on podcast, whenever you're listening, thank you for that as well. Till next time, about 167 and a half hours from right now, God bless.